A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Apologies for coming to you a little bit late this week. You know how it is. <laughs> you know. But we're here. Yeah. We will always be here. Let's start. <laughs> Whether you like it or not. Yeah, seriously, we will always be here. Now let's start at the show by thanking our Patreon subscribers from this past week. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. And we had Jessica, Rebecca, Eleanor, Liz, Molly, Charlotte, Susan. We have a special shout out to Maggie who was on the Patreon list last week and my bad, forgot to give you a shout out, Maggie. So here's your shout out. Hey, Kevin, Olivia, Katie, Stephanie, Chantal, Casey, Zach, Sinead, Rich, Alina, Ashley, Holly, Kelsey, and Steve. Thanks guys. Thank you. Okay. I just realized I didn't tell you what I was doing this week. I have no idea. So this week we are doing a movie versus reality, but the truth is it's really a movie, TV shows, books, and popular opinion versus reality. Today we are going to discuss the 1964 rape and murder of 28-year-old Kitty Genovese. Do you know this case? Of course. Okay. This murder became international news after the New York Times published an article claiming that 37, it was actually corrected to 38, so you'll see both numbers a lot. Witnesses saw or heard the attack and that none of them called the police or came to her aid, letting Kitty bleed to death as she died alone. The incident prompted inquiries into what became known as the bystander effect or Genevieve syndrome, and the murder became a staple of U.S. psychology textbooks for the next four decades. However, 40-plus years after the murder, people began to realize that there was more to the case than the lore suggested. My main source is an excellent book by Kevin Cook called Kenny Genevieve. Kitty Genovese, The Murder, The Bystanders, The Crime That Changed America. And I also watched a documentary called The Witness, which follows Kitty's brother, Michael, as he tries to find out the real story. That's a really good documentary. He talks to a lot of the relatives of witnesses because a lot of them are no longer living. Um, And he talks to the writer of that article in the New York Times. So highly recommend. It's um, I think it was on Amazon Prime. Anyway, let's get into the story. Catherine Susan Kitty Genovese was born July 7, 1935 in Brooklyn, the first of five children born to Rachel and Vincent Genovese. The family lived in a nice Park Slope brownstone, and in her teenage years, she attended the all-girl Prospect Heights High School, where she was recalled as being self-assured beyond her years and having a sunny disposition. She was also described as attractive and charming and was designated in her senior awards to be the class cut-up. She graduated in 1953, two weeks shy of her 18th birthday. In 1954, her mother Rachel witnessed a shooting right on the street by their home, and the family decided it was time to move to a safer area, New Canaan, Connecticut. But Kitty was a city girl, and she told her parents she would be staying behind and lived with her grandparents in Brooklyn until she could make it on her own. She said to her parents when they begged her to move near them that New York City is where she felt free and alive. That year, she also had a quickie marriage that was annulled the same year. 
Although not necessarily the cause of the divorce, Kitty realized that she was a lesbian, and although she had a side to her that was domestic and traditional, she wanted kids, for instance, she was attracted to women. So she knew she had a choice to make, because in those days, it definitely was something that seemed like you couldn't have both. Like you had to pick one or the other. And she chose to live her, you know, life as a lesbian. Like that's what she couldn't give up. So she eventually begins working as a bartender in Hollis, Queens. And she made a ton of friends there. And she made really good money enough so that she could get her own apartment finally. In August of 1961, she was arrested for bookmaking as she had been taking bets on horse races from bar patrons. This was a common side hustle for bartenders back then, and it was often referred to as the Italian lottery. (laughs) (laughs) So that was funny. Anyway, she and her then-girlfriend, Dee Guarnari, were fined $50 each, and she lost that job. Now, her mugshot from this arrest is the commonly used photo that you've probably seen of her. Yeah. Uh, and I have to say, she would for sure be on Mugshot Hotties because yeah. it's a really good mugshot. It's a great like, picture. She looks hot. She kind of reminds me of a pre-fame Madonna. Like, she has that look when Madonna had the dark, short hair. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in 1963, she meets Marianne Zelenko, a pretty smart 24-year-old blonde Marianne was a small town girl from New Hampshire, obsessed with pulp novels, who dreamed of moving to New York City's Greenwich Village as a kid, where she knew she would be with others like her, girls who liked girls. She moved to the village when she was just 16 years old. Now, even though there was a certain freedom in the city, uh, homosexuality was basically still illegal due to sodomy laws back then. Uh, They existed in every state except for Illinois, but Illinois found ways to work around that as well. Well, the police were still raiding gay bars. Oh, totally. So cops were constantly raiding gay bars, including ones like Swing Rendezvous, which was a lesbian bar that Marianne hung out at. It was also where she met Kitty, who did the old, don't I know you from somewhere pickup line? Mm -hmm. And Marianne was kind of like, ugh. But (laughs) Kitty was so cute and charming. The two days danced and talked all night. At some point, Kitty disappears and Marianne was pretty sure she would never see her again. About three days later on St. Patrick's Day, Marianne came home and found a note taped to her door. It said, I'll call you at 7 p.m. at the phone across the street. She knew it was from Kitty, even though it wasn't signed. Kitty called and they agreed to meet at a bar called The Seven Steps. When Kitty arrived, Marianne described it 50 years later as the best moment of her life, seeing Kitty walk in. She said, sometimes you meet a person and you just know. It was a real case of opposites attracting. They were different in almost every way, but they just clicked. They spent their first night together that same night, and by the next morning, they knew they wanted to live together. They eventually found an apartment in Kew Gardens, a very safe neighborhood, uh, no one locked their doors type neighborhood in Queens. Some neighbors assumed they were flight attendants who were roommates, and no one knew they were a couple, or at least they pretended not to know uh, that fact. Everyone described them as friendly and good neighbors. Now, by this point, Kitty is bartending at Ev's 11th Hour Bar on Jamaica Avenue in Hollis, Queens, and was soon managing the bar on behalf of the owner, who was pretty much never around. So she took on bartending duties as well as managerial stuff. She worked double shifts, so she was able to save money, and she intended to open them, open up an Italian restaurant with her savings. That was like her goal. She even wanted like those Chianti bottles with yeah, the candles. Of course. <laughs> so she wanted an old school Italian uh, restaurant. Now, when she worked 
worked these double shifts, she would get home pretty late, 2.30 to 3.30 a.m., and there would often be no street parking. So she would park in the Long Island Railroad parking lot that was right near her building, despite all the no parking signs, and everyone kind of did that. Kitty felt safe walking home on these empty streets late at night. It truly was a small little quaint neighborhood, and it's the smallest neighborhood in Queens. And much like other small towns across the U.S., the idea of a murder there seemed ridiculous to residents. On March 12, 1964, Kitty got ready for work, looking forward to her one-year anniversary with Mary Ann that was the following day, the day they met. She had another double, which meant she would bartend during the day, and then after six, she would do all the books, the inventory, and stuff like that until late in the evening. She made, in today's money, by the way, about $5,000 a month, which is a pretty good salary. Yeah, that's (laughs) That's pretty good. good salary. So when her parents would kind of nag her about her dating life, like she would go home on the weekends to Connecticut with Marianne and... The parents would still be like, so when are you, how's the dating going? <laughs> like, like it was one of those situations. Right. Uh, so she she would tell her father she didn't need a man to take care of her because she earned most more than most of them. So go, Kitty. Uh, that night when the bar was empty around 2.30 a.m., she told the bartender he could close up and she exited into the chilly 34-degree night. Now, Genevieve... Genevieve's arrived home around 3.15 a.m. and parked her car, like I said, in the Kew Gardens Long Island Railroad Station parking lot, which was about 100 feet from her apartment's door in an alleyway at the rear of the building. Um, It is suspected that Kitty felt more nervous that night because she walked on the more lighted part of the street and didn't take her typical route. Her sense was correct because she soon soon saw a man approaching her holding a hunting knife. Kitty ran toward the front of the building and the man ran after her, overtook her, and stabbed her twice in the back. She screamed, oh my God, he stabbed me, help me. Several neighbors heard her cry, but only a few of them recognized the sound as a cry for help. Robert Moser, who was one of her neighbors, shouted at the attacker, let that girl go, let let that girl alone. The attacker then ran away and Genevieve slowly made her way toward the rear entrance of the building already seriously injured and out of view of any of the witnesses. Now, other witnesses saw the man enter his car, drive away, and then return 10 minutes later, shadowing his face with a wide-brimmed hat. He searched the parking lot of the Long Island train station. He searched all the um, apartment complexes trying to open the doors. And he eventually found Kitty, who was barely conscious and lying in a hallway at the back of her building, where a locked door had prevented her from going inside. So this is one of those buildings where there's a front door and then there's a little alcove before there's a second door. It's mm-hmm. a typical way a New York apartment is. So that's where he found her. Uh, out of view of the street and those who had seen or heard anything else, he stabbed Genevieve several more times before raping her, stealing $49 from her, and running away again. The attack spanned approximately half an hour, and knife wounds in Genevieve's hands suggested that she attempted to defend herself from him. Records of the earliest calls to police are unclear and were not given high priority. One witness said his father called police after the initial attack and reported that a woman was beat up but got up and was staggering around. Um, There were several other calls, but there was not much information given. Some people hung up. Um, She she was picked up by an ambulance at 4.15 a.m. and died en route to the hospital. She had been stabbed 13 times, each stab wound jagged, meaning she fought each one. Uh, Her official cause of death was suffocation from the air escaping her punctured lungs as she tried to scream for help. The blood would fill up her lungs. 
So obviously, Genevieve's girlfriend, they thought was her roommate, Marianne, was woken up by police pounding on her door. She was told that Kenny had been attacked and was dead before she was questioned by Detective Mitchell Sang at 7 a.m. on the morning of the murder. Now, this is like one of those situations that is just so heart-wringing because she can't even say, that's my girlfriend. Yeah. She has to act like she's just a roommate. Yeah. Uh, it's, and then she's being treated like a suspect as well. Right. So she can't even say, no, this person means everything to me. Right. Uh, she's later interrogated for six more hours by homicide detectives, John Carroll and Jerry Burns, who questioned her about her relationship with Kitty. This was the police's focus when they questioned um, the neighbors as well. They were asking about this relationship. She was initially considered a suspect, but she was quickly ruled out and detectives at that point had no leads. Then on March 19th, 1964, six days after the stabbing, a man named Winston Mosley was arrested for robbery in Ozone Park, Queens. A television set was discovered in the trunk of his car, which was a white Chevrolet Corvair. Mosley's car was searched after a local man named Raul Cleary became suspicious when he saw Mosley removing the television from a neighbor's house. When he asked Mosley about it, he said, oh, I'm helping them move. Uh, He went to another neighbor named Jack Brown and asked if this house was moving. And they said, no, those homeowners aren't moving. This guy's fucking lying. So Cleary calls the police while Brown disables Mosley's car so he can't get away before the police arrive. So the police come and arrest this guy for robbery. He's taken in to the police station for questioning. And the police were kind of baffled. This was a man with a good job. He had a wife. He had kids. Why is he doing these small, petty fucking robberies, like stealing a TV? His trunk was full of other shit, like small appliances, like nothing really of any value, as well as 30 pornographic pictures. He was calm and basically admitted to the thefts, yet detectives felt like there was something he wasn't confessing to. There was something creepy in his calm, confessional state, like he was just so calm. They decided to hold him longer while they looked into other unsolved crimes that had happened in Queens in the recent months. So one detective who wasn't questioning Mosley said that he remembered that a white car had been reported by some of the witnesses to the Genovese murder, and he informed the detectives who were questioning him. The detective asked Mosley about this, and he basically said nothing. Now, an interesting thing here is that Miranda rights were not a thing until two years later. Oh. So this is why they're kind of able to keep him around and question him without like an attorney. Like They didn't have to give him those like warnings and like, do you know what I mean? Right. So this is kind of why that's happening. And in the book I read, this guy's like, honestly, if things had gone awry here, they could have been called Mosley rights because that's how on the border this guy was being treated. He just never went after it. So during the questioning, one of the detectives noticed two small scabs on Mosley's hands. Mosley claimed they were from working around the house. Detective Carroll said, no, you got them from Kitty Genovese when you were putting the knife in. The room went completely silent because that like came out of nowhere. Everyone's like, whoa, whoa. He was kind of fishing. Like he had zero proof. He just was whatever, pushing buttons. Mosley looked around and a smile formed on his lips. He said, okay, I killed her. Detectives were stunned and instantly began to wonder, who is Winston Mosley? How did this family man end up here confessing to a brutal murder? So he just fucking confessed like with, with literally one question. What the fuck? 
Okay. So Winston Mosley was born in 1935. He's actually the same age as Kitty. He grew up in Harlem. His mother was very proud of him growing up and bragged that he was toilet trained by the age of four months. That's, that's not true. That's very, <laughs> that's very young. There was like this whole thing about her being obsessed with his bowel movements. And I guess that's a thing that can happen. But yeah, no. When Winston was nine, his mother told him that she had something growing in her, but it wasn't a baby. It was a tumor. She told him that she would be going to the hospital to have it cut out. She never came home again. Winston would later find out, though, it wasn't because she died. She had the surgery and then ditched her family to move back to Michigan, where she was from. Whoa. Yeah. So his dad couldn't raise him by himself at that point, and he sent uh, Winston to live on a farm with his grandma before picking him up one day and moving the whole, both of them to Detroit. When Winston was 10, his dad told him, oh, by the way, I'm not your real father. Your mom had been fucking a lot of other men. Winston was obviously very upset by this news, and he actually begged his dad not to say that and to take it back. He lost his virginity to an aunt at the <gasps> age of 16. Oh, no. And they continued this sexual relationship or sexual abuse, actually, for two years. He said that he was simultaneously into it and repulsed by it. Wow. Yeah. At 19, he married a woman named Pauline, and they moved to Brooklyn. She began cheating on him with a bartender where she worked, and Winston went down to the bar one day with a gun to kill the bartender. Pauline was there, grabbed the gun from him, and threatened to shoot him. He looked her dead in the eye and told her to go go for it, kill me, but she couldn't um, pull the trigger, so they obviously got divorced. In 1961, he married a woman named Betty. He he met at the place where he worked, which was called Remington Rand. He worked as a tab operator, which was preparing the punched cards that are used for like data storage on digital computers, Mm -hmm. like way back in the day. They bought a house in Ozone Park, quickly started a family, and they had their first son within a year of being married. Now, Winston's boss, I'm sorry, yeah, Winston's boss loved him. He was constantly being promoted and given raises. He also had like a really great job and just like had limitless potential at this company. His boss even trusted him so much that he would often ask him to drop his 16-year-old daughter off at home. But at home, Betty began to notice his mood swings and behavior changes were becoming more and more extreme. He spent most of his evenings after work at a bar and was sullen and quiet at home. His behavior became even more alarming, though, when it came to the matter of their sex life. They once had a more typical sex life, but Betty would say later he eventually could only get aroused while going down on her. But that was all he would do, and it was very... um, one-sided. So you wouldn't stick it in after? He wouldn't stick it in after, but it was also something like, even though it's technically like, oh, that seems like great. He's doing it for her. It was something about it that was not, was unsettling. Because it, it was almost like she was not even there kind right. of thing. Uh, anyway, she didn't like it. So that's all that really matters. Um, but it was disturbing to her. Another change was that he used to be immaculately put together, well-groomed. He began skipping showers, so much so that everyone began noticing the change, not just Betty. He also began to leave the house nightly. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
and drive aimlessly throughout Queens, something he would later refer to as hunting. On March 12, 1964, he was out hunting late into the evening. He was just about to go home when he spotted a young woman getting into a bright red Fiat and decided to follow her on the Grand Central Parkway and onto Queens Boulevard as she exited before turning onto Austin Street and Kew Gardens. That woman was Kitty Genovese. He would later describe it this way, a quiet, dark street. It was just what I was hoping for. Now, Mosley told detectives about how he followed her and attacked her, but detectives still weren't sure he wasn't just making it up because this story was pretty big and in the news. They needed him to reveal something only the killer would know. He gave them just that when he told them that Kitty had been wearing a maxi pad because she was menstruating. And that was something no one knew except for Marianne and Kitty, basically. Right. He was questioned for eight hours after that. Uh, He eventually asked for dinner. He got a double hamburger, a coffee with cream, and a slice of French apple pie. But Mosley had more surprises for detectives. He admitted to 30 to 40 more robberies, several more rapes, and two more murders. Oh, my God. One was a woman named Annie Mae Johnson... Uh, Mosley told cops, I think this murder happened about two weeks before Kitty. Mosley told cops that he had shot her outside of her car, then dragged her into her home because she was like parking in front of her home. He thought she was dead. He uh, undressed her and started to go down on her before trying to rape her, but he couldn't get hard from uh, penetration. So while he's on top of her trying to whatever... She starts breathing and he realizes that she wasn't dead this whole time. He was so angry uh, at her for whatever sick reason he had that he started a fire using a scarf between her legs. So he like started the fire in her crotch and she basically burned. Like he he lit her on fire and left her to burn in her house. Now, cops thought that he was lying um, because on in their records, Anna Mae had been stabbed with an ice pick. That was sort of what was on the autopsy report. Her body was exhumed, and it turned out the coroner had fucked up. What he thought was stab wounds was actually bullet wounds. <gasps> so they were like, oh, shit, this guy is fucking telling the truth again. He also confessed to murdering 15-year-old Barbara Kralik, who had been killed in her parents' Springfield Gardens home the previous July. He said his motive for the Genovese attack was to simply kill a woman, saying he preferred to kill women because they were easier and didn't fight back. Subsequent psychiatric examination suggested that Mosley was a necrophiliac, a paranoid schizophrenic with a deep hatred for women. Uh, In the days following the murder, it was like a local news story, but it didn't receive much major media attention at that time. It was just another murder in a huge city. It took a remark from the New York police commissioner, Michael Murphy, to New York Times Metropolitan Editor Abe Rosenthal over a lunch that sort of sparked this New York Times story. He mentioned this Queen story and said it was one for the books to this uh, New York Times guy, and he was like off and running with it. Now, his description of how he approached this story, he said, news is not philosophy or theology, but what certain human beings, reporters, and editors know will have meaning and interest to other human beings, meaning the readers. He described the process of the police commissioner's remark about 38 silent witnesses as such a shocking thing, the realization that what you're seeing or hearing will startle a reader. So when he heard that, he instantly knew it was like this sensational Uh, storyline that he could kind of sell. Now, this story and this idea of these people not helping her touched him in such a way 
uh, he really felt like it was this revelation about the human condition that was so appalling to contemplate that these people could just watch someone or not do anything about someone died. So it's hitting on all of these like social uh, things that are happening in the 60s too. Like a lot of people are already thinking like the big cities are, you know, fucking hell holes and like it's not safe to live there for whatever various reasons. Um, he thought it was a high drama piece and he could just see like this 38 of her neighbors had seen her stabbed or heard her cries and that not one of them during that hideous half hour had lifted the telephone in the safety of their own apartment to call the police or try to save their life. Now, what about the people who did? That was not, that's not the story that they're selling, Rachel. (laughs) Okay. They're ignoring all of this other evidence and they're focusing on this. Now... That number comes from some like clerk in the police department said that they had 38 witnesses. There was actually 49 witnesses in this original police report. Uh But as far as the story goes, they're ignoring any evidence that contradicts the idea that these people just uh, ignored this murder. Wow. Now, the article is written by Martin Gainsburg and was published March 27th, 1964, two weeks after the murder. It claimed that 38 witnesses saw the murder. Um, as I mentioned before, there's an error in the original ha- original headline, which read, 37 who saw murder didn't call the police. Uh, and then the ha- sub-headline is, apathy at stabbing of Queenswoman shocks inspector. And that's like the police person or whatever. So... <laughs> I mean, obviously, okay, and I'm going to read the opening paragraph here. For more than half an hour, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Twice the sound of their voices and the sudden glow of their bedroom lights interrupted him and frightened him off. Each time he returned, sought her out and stabbed her again. Not one person telephoned the police during the deadly assault. One, would, one woman called after the woman was dead. Now, just reading this, I can already see like five mistakes and there might be more. Like she was only attacked twice so that she wasn't attacked three times. There's a lot of mistakes here, but you can see how reading that paragraph is fucking sensational and outrageous. And when I heard this case, this is the story I knew and it was shocking. Well, they really are trying to sell this. The city is dangerous. Oh, totally. So the public view of this story really crystallized around a quote from the article that was from an unidentified neighbor who saw part of the attack, but deliberated before finally getting another neighbor to call the police. He said, I didn't want to get involved. Now, that quote really took off and summed up this article to a T. Uh, people began seeing this murder as emblematic of the callousness or apathy of life in big city, in particular in New York. Now, Rosenthal in particular felt like this was, he was known for like wanting to touch these nerves and, and was more concerned about stories that packed an emotional punch than anything else. So this was like right in his wheelhouse. Uh, this local story quickly became an international sensation. It was a metaphor for every modern ill from the evils of television, which led to desensitization to sex and violence. The women's lib movement was blamed. It also hit on everyone's primal fear that they could be attacked and no one would help them. But more importantly, and we know this all too well today, it gave everyone a perfect opportunity to feel superior to those who callously let Kitty die because they were chicken shit and immoral. Like it was, it was like one of those things where it's like, I would never let right. someone like it was, these people were just like, it was a way to feel superior to these witnesses who did nothing. It became a real national conversation. What would you do? Etc. 
Now, this really became a stigma to Kew Gardens as well. The people felt kind of thrown under the bus by this. It's like, <laughs> hey, like um, people started moving out of the neighborhood, including Mary Ann and one of the neighbors, Carl Ross. Um, people also felt bad for not hearing the murder. So they had guilt, like they couldn't have done anything. So right. like, I didn't hear anything. I would have helped, that kind of stuff. Well, it was at three in the morning. Yeah, and and people were defensive, like, they uh, they obviously had racism came in it to it, into it as well. Like people were like, "Well, why are we being blamed for what a black guy from Ozon Park did?" Like it's not Kew right. Gardens. Like right. like don't blame Kew Gardens, even though Kew Gardens is a pretty mixed area. Yeah. Um, regardless, uh, that was the narrative then, and that is what people thought as the as being the narrative for decades. So prosecutors obviously started investigating the police records and they obviously recognized that these people were witnesses because they were going to call them on the fucking stand. This got so out of control though, they actually couldn't call two of the witnesses and those were people that actually maybe were uh, wrong in this case. So I'm going to get into them right now. There were two witnesses um, that the prosecutors chose not to call because they actually thought it would distract from the case because they fit the narrative of the New York Times, especially a man named Joseph Fink. Joseph worked in the apartment building across the street from where Genevieve lived. He saw the first attack and did nothing. After Mosley fled, he decided to go down to his basement and take a nap rather than go out and help her. So that really did happen. Yes. Now, this one's a little bit more ambiguous, but still not great. And this is Carl Ross, who was actually a friend of uh, Kitty and Marianne's. And he was with Marianne that night after uh, Kitty was killed. He was wasted that night. So he heard the first attack and did nothing. The second attack occurred in that vestibule. Like if you open the door that was locked, the stairs led right to his apartment door. So his apartment door was right above where she was attacked for the final time. He opened the door a crack at some point and saw Winston Mosley plunging a knife into Genevieve's. He closed the door because he was terrified. He made a couple of phone calls, the first to a friend on Long Island who advised him to do nothing, the second to a neighbor in the building who told him to come over. He crawled out of his window across the roof and into that neighbor's apartment, and there they called the police. Now, it may or may not be relevant. He was also gay. And as we mentioned earlier, that was a time when gay New Yorkers had a lot of fear of the police uh, right. and from attackers. Like, yeah. uh, and, and so that's why I said he's a little bit more ambiguous because he did see her being attacked and shut the door, like, right. which has got to be an awful thing to live with. So he also is the one who said the quote that set off the bad Sam- Samaritan narrative, I didn't want to get involved. Like that is his quote. Some of the witnesses that were called were Robert Moser, the man who stopped the initial attack by, attack by yelling out the window. He said on stand that he assumed it was a domestic dispute and yelled, leave that girl alone, which made Mosley run away. He saw her stand up and walk away out of sight and went to bed thinking that it was over. So that was sort of his story. Now, a neighbor of his heard him yell. Her name is Andre Peaks. She stared out her window petrified when she heard the the yelling, she saw Mosley return with the feathered fedora, checking the doors and the, that were all locked. She also saw him disappear around the corner and then heard more screams for help. She actually called the police, but was so frightened she could barely breathe or speak like while she was on the phone with them. 
she was also afraid to identify herself because I don't think she was in the country legally. So she just hung up the phone at some point. Now, this distrust of police, you can see how it plays a big part here um, with this witness, um, with the gay people who lived in the building. And someone also mentioned that there was a lot of like um, Holocaust survivors in these buildings. And they also had a huge distrust, distrust of police banging on doors or getting involved in that kind of stuff. Right. So... You, you can just see how it's so bad to have that kind of environment uh, where there's this distrust. Look, a of lot, cops. A, like, a lot of Americans are traumatized by the police and have yeah, every, and have a right to be. It's not a good thing, though. Like, I mean, it's, I'm not care about the cops because they deserve it, but like, it's not a good thing for people's safety. Like, no, yeah. So the time story was inaccurate, obviously, in a number of significant ways. There were two attacks, not three. Only a handful of people saw the first clearly and only one saw the second because it took place in that vestibule. Multiple people called the police. Um, The ambulance arrived at the scene because people had called for help. Like it didn't just show up out of nowhere. And Genevieve was alive uh, when they arrived. She did not die alone. She was being held by one of her neighbors, Sophia Farrar. Uh, So... There was just so many inaccuracies in that time story. Um, it was just wild. Now, but once people read this huge story, that becomes this, the truth. That becomes the truth. Yeah, to people, and people want to believe the more sensational version, right. in a way. Um, mostly is charged, obviously, with the murder of Kitty Genovese. Um, he is not charged with the other two murders he admitted to. For the police. One complicating factor was that another man named Alvin Mitchell also confessed to the murder of Barbara Kralik. So they weren't sure what to do with that one at that point. Now, his trial began on June 8th, 1964, and was presided over by Judge J. Erwin Shapiro. Mosley initially pleaded not guilty, but his attorney later changed his plea to not guilty by reason of um, insanity. The prosecutor, Frank Cacciatore... (laughs) Great name. <laughs> Excellent name. Began his case, uh, which included calling all those witnesses and reading Mosley's account of what happened to a wrapped courtroom. So I'm going to read you some excerpts of what he read. This is um, his confession. He said, I ran after her and stabbed her twice in the back. Somebody yelled and I was frightened, so I jumped back into the car, back the car to the nearest cross street. I decided that even though that person had yelled, they weren't going to come down the street to see what happened to her. And I noticed as I was backing the car back that the woman had gotten up and appeared to be going around the corner. So I came back thinking I would find her. Now, (laughs) the courtroom is literally like, you could hear a pin drop when he's reading this uh, confession. He then said she wasn't in the train station. It was locked. So I said to myself, well, perhaps she's in one of these hallways. The second door I tried it open and there she was laying on the floor. When she saw me, she started screaming again. So I stabbed her a few more times. She seemed so quiet to quiet down a little bit. She wasn't really struggling with me hard now. So I lifted up her skirt and I cut off her girdle. I cut or pulled her panties off and she had a sanitary pad and I picked that out and threw it away. I stabbed her in the stomach. I cut off her brassiere and I don't remember whether I cut her blouse off or not, but I did take off her false pads that she kept in her brassiere. He then asked, um, the questioner asked him, did she stop screaming? He said, yes. Uh, He then said, I laid on top of her and attempted to have sexual intercourse with her, but I was unable to as I was impotent. And though I had an orgasm, I was not able to penetrate her. Now he also stabbed her in the vagina 
as like sort of a punishment for his impotency. So it's a real pattern with him to blame women for his own uh, stuff. Now, the prosecution rested after this dramatic reading of his confession. Now, Mosley does testify in his defense, which is crazy. During his testimony, he describes events on the night that he murdered Kitty, along with the two other murders to which he had confessed. And he also talks about the other burglaries and rapes, even though they're not part of this case, obviously. Now, he's, this is in his defense? Yes. He gets on the stand and just starts like saying everything. But I guess they're trying to prove that he's not mentally sound. Yeah, that's basically what they're going for. He even says on stand, he's like, the, my attorney said the only chance we had is to prove we're insane. I'm insane. Like, so this guy is like all over the place. Now, he also says on stand that the reason he went after Kitty that night is that he wanted to kill a white woman that, that night to see if there was any difference. His previous murder victims were both black women. So that was his goal that night. When asked why he didn't leave after Moser yelled down, he said... I didn't think he would come down to help her, so I knew it was safe. And that is, like, just so sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also said that um, at the reason he stabbed her in the throat was because she had screamed, and he felt like that was the direct way to make her stop. Uh, just, like, the jury got, like, very sick, and one of the assistant district attorneys or prosecutors actually almost vomited from that aspect of the story. When asked about why he stole the money from her, he said, that's just being practical. Why would I throw away free money? So, I mean, this guy just went on the stand and acted like the piece of shit he was. Needless to say, the jury did not find him very charming. They deliberated for just seven hours before returning a guilty verdict around 10.30 p.m. on June 11th. On June 15th, he was sentenced to death for the murder of Kitty Genovese. When the jury foreman read the sentence, he showed no emotion, and people in the spectators, uh, whatever, benches, applauded and cheered during this announcement. The judge said, I don't believe in capital punishment, but when I see a monster like this, I wouldn't hesitate to pull the switch myself. On June 23rd, he appeared as a defense witness in the trial of Alvin Mitchell for the murder of Barbara Kralik. He was, a granted, he was granted immunity from prosecution, prosecution, and he testified that he had killed her. That produced a hung jury, but he was eventually con- convicted in a second trial, the other guy, Alvin Mitchell. Oh. So I have no idea who, for some reason I feel like Mosley did, <laughs> but I have no proof. Right Now, on June 1st, 1967, the New York Court of Appeals found that he should have been able to argue that he was medically insane at the sentencing hearing, where the court found that he had been legally sane and the sentence was reduced to lifetime imprisonment. Now, by all accounts, Mosley was a model prisoner until March 13th, 1968, the four-year anniversary of Kitty's killing. He showed up in the prison infirmary with what is described as a metal, like a metal meat tin, what might, like spam might come in, that size, shoved deep into his rectum. Oh my God. He had shoved it up there himself, almost so deep that he had to be taken to the hospital to have surgery to remove it. That's... Yeah. A very... It's big. I know, but I'm even just the shape of it seems yeah. like how the do doc, you... The doctor was like, I don't even know how he got it that far up there because right. that must have been excruciatingly painful. Like, right. Yeah, the shape is weird too. On March 18th, while being transported back to prison, he hit the transporting correctional officer, stole his weapon, and fled to a nearby vacant home that was owned by a couple, Mr. and Mrs. Matthew Kalaga. There he stayed undetected for three days. 
On March 21st, the Kulagas went to check on the house where they encountered Mosley, who held them hostage for more than an hour, binding and gagging Matthew and raping Mrs. Kulaga. He then took the couple's car and fled. On March 22nd, he broke into another house and held a woman and her daughter hostage for two hours before releasing them. He did rape one of those women, too. I don't know if it was the daughter or the mother. He surrendered to police shortly afterwards and was charged with escape kidnapping, to which he pled guilty. He was also given two additional 15-year sentences to run concurrently with his life sentence. In September of 1971, he participated in the Attica prison riot, which was a huge, infamous prison riot that's mentioned in Dog Day Afternoon or sort of the basis of that. Later in the same decade, he kind of tries to turn his life around, but it seems very uh, motivated to get out on parole. He gets his bachelor in sociology. He starts trying to be like a model prisoner again. And it's all sort of gearing up for this parole hearing in 1984. He becomes, I think that was the first time he became eligible for parole. During his first parole hearing, he tells the parole board that the notoriety he faced due to his crimes made him a victim. He said, for a victim outside, it's a one-time, one-hour, one-minute affair. But for the person who's caught, it's forever. Well, I mean, (laughs) mean, this guy. I would say the trauma is pretty bad. Or like you die. So maybe it was one minute, but it's like uh, the end of your life. Right. He also claimed... He had, he had a, look, he didn't give up. He threw a lot of shit at the wall to see what would stick. He also tried to go with this one. The reason he killed Kitty was because he, um, he cut her off. She then got him to pull over, got out of her car and called him a racial slur and he snapped and killed her. He also felt like he should get credit for not killing the people when he escaped. He just raped the two women. Uh, at the same hearing, he claimed that he never intended to kill Kitty and that he considered her murder, murder to be a mugging because people do kill people when they mug sometimes. So <laughs> it was just supposed to be a mugging, I guess. The board obviously um, denied his request for parole. He returned for a parole hearing on March 13. 13- 13th, 2008, which happened to be the 44th anniversary of her murder. And he continued to show very little remorse for her murder. Parole was once again denied. This, uh, he did go on to say at some point, I guess trying to get in our good graces, that his misdeed actually ended up making the world a better place. He said, the crime was tragic, but it did serve society, urging it as it did to come to the aid of its members in distress or danger. He was denied parole for an 18th time in November of 2015 and died in prison on March 28th, 2016 at the age of 81. He had served 52 years in prison, making him one of the longest serving inmates in the New York prison system. Okay. Now, it wasn't until the past 20 years that people really began to revisit the case and the truth about what had happened. Part of the problem as I mentioned earlier, is was it was so enmeshed in social psychology and, for the lack of a better term, pop culture as well. The apparent lack of reaction by these neighbors that watched Genevieve, you know, be mur- murdered as she cried for help, even though this was erroneously reported, prompted a lot of research into diffusion of responsibility and the bystander effect. Social scientists um, began researching this phenomenon like a lot after uh, Kitty's death, showing that. Um, Um, contrary to what you might expect, when there's a larger number of bystanders, that decreases the likelihood that someone will step forward and help a victim. The reasons this happens is, are several, there are several reasons why this happens. Um, Most of it is that onlookers believe um, that others will 
do it better, know how to help better or someone else is going to do it. Some people are uncertain about helping others while people are watching them. Like it's kind of like a shy thing. You don't want to be seen. So you're actually, this is true. Like this, the bystander effect is true. Like the fact that this came out because of Kitty doesn't mean this isn't true. You're actually more likely to help someone if you're the only one around or people are not you. I'm not talking to you, Uh, (laughs) which is kind of an interesting thing. And I can kind of, I can see it even though I don't know what I would do necessarily. I mean, I feel like I'd help, but who the hell knows? You want to believe you would, but I mean, I am crazy. So I feel like I would help (laughs) just because I don't think in those moments, like kind of like when those people were in my yard and I was like, excuse me. Right. (laughs) Like, so I have seen myself act in dangerous situations, maybe like not in the best way. (laughs) Um, But yeah, who knows? The, I mean, I can also see like someone must be doing something like, right. should I do something? Like I'm a woman. What am I, you know, there's like a lot of things you can talk yourself in and out of. And it's psychologically, I think a lot of these people with Kitty too were like, oh, maybe it was just people getting loud at the bar. Like you, you come up with an explanation that's not as dangerous maybe. Well, I think also just the unbelievable fact that it was happening in this supposedly quiet neighborhood yeah, and there was like a bar that was nearby, so it wasn't, and it was by a train station, so it was like not a, out of the realm of possibility that it was someone partying or out late or whatever. Right. Um, so this just became a classic case that was featured in social psycho- psychology textbooks in both the United States and the UK for decades. In September of 2007, American psychologists published an examination of the factual basis of the coverage of this case, and the three authors concluded that the story was more parable than fact, largely because of this inaccurate newspaper coverage in the New York Times. According to the authors, despite the absence of evidence, the story continues to inhabit our our introductory social psychology textbooks and the minds of future social, social psychologists. A survey of 10 leading undergraduate psychology textbooks found this case in all 10 of them with eight textbooks suggesting that witnesses watched from their window as Kitty was murdered and two textbooks stating that some or most of the witnesses heard the murder but could not see the attack. Like, so it was like just doing parroting all these talking points from the book. Now, another interesting aspect of the case came to light in 2004. This guy, that was the 40th anniversary of the murder and they had a I don't know, a conference at Fordham University. And this conference included Abe Rosenthal, the guy who basically got this story out in the New York Times. He always claimed that he had no ulterior motives for pitching this thing. Well, he wanted to sell papers. But other than that, right, he actually did have an ulterior motive or like a personal uh, connection to something like this, even though it's a little odd. Now, from the lectern at this conference, out of nowhere, and I don't even know if he was thinking clearly because he's very, you know, much older at this time, so maybe he wasn't even realizing what he was saying. He said that his sister Bess had died many years earlier after an incident that was similar to Genevieve's. He said that his sister had been walking home one day when a flasher exposed himself to her. She was so terrified she ran all the way home and caught a really bad cold after that and never recovered. He thinks that this incident was what caused her fatal uh, illness. He said a sexual pervert jumped out of the bushes and exposed himself to her. I still miss my darling Bess and feel Bess was murdered by this criminal who took her life away, no less than the monster who killed Kenny Genovese. Now, I don't really find this to be at all the same. <laughs> I feel bad for his sister. Yeah. But this guy was disgusting and a pervert, but I don't see how that made her catch a cold and die. 
Like it's uh, a weird thing. Yeah. But he did, ha- he felt it. So right. that is definitely a motivating for factor for him. Right. Even though I find it to be weird. Now, after Mosley's death in 2016, the New York Times finally printed uh, like a retraction or saying that their story was flawed. Really? So that many years later, they printed, while there was no question that the attack occurred and that some neighbors ignored cries for help, the portrayal of 38 witnesses as fully aware and unresponsive was erroneous. The article grossly exaggerated the number of witnesses and what they had perceived, None saw the attack in its entirety. Only a few had glimpsed parts of it or recognized cries for help. Many thought they had heard lovers or drunks quarreling. There were two attacks, not three. And afterward, two people did call the police. Another woman ventured out and cradled the dying victim in her arms until they arrived. Miss Genevieve died on the way to the hospital. Because of this layout of of complex information and facts that took place in different locations. No witness saw the entire sequence of events. So like that whole aspect of it is a lie. Like they were just seeing snippets and pieces and trying to figure out what was going on. Right. Investigation by the police and prosecutors showed that approximately a dozen individuals had heard or seen portions of the attack, though no one saw the entire incident. Only one witness, Joseph Bank, was aware she was stabbed in the first attack. Like they didn't even know she was stabbed. Most people thought it was like a domestic violence incident where she got hit or knocked down. Only Carl Ross was aware of the second attack. None of them knew that that vestibule stabbing happened except for him. Many were entirely unaware that an assault or homicide had taken place. Some thought what they saw or heard um, was just friends leaving the bar. I mean, there was just like and no one had the same experience. After the initial attack, attack punctured her lungs that led to her death from asphyxi- asphyxiation. It was unlikely she was even able to scream anymore at that point at any volume. So it just ended at some point and most people just went back to bed because it's 3 a.m. Like, right. So they're half groggy and tired too as well. Now, in a 2015 documentary that featured William William Kitty's brother, the one I mentioned called The Witness, he discovered that other crime reporters knew of the many problems in this story even back in 1964. Immediately after the story broke, a WNBC reporter named Danny Meehan discovered many inconsistencies in the original article in the New York Times. He asked New York Times reporter Martin Gainsbourg why his article had failed to reveal that witnesses did not feel the murder was happening, and Gainsbourg replied, it would have ruined the story. (gasps) Not wishing to jeopardize his career by attacking the powerful New York Times editor Abe Rosenthal, he kept his findings secret and passed his notes to a fellow NBC reporter named Gabe Pressman. Now, this guy, Pressman, taught a course in journalism in which some of his students called Rosenthal and confronted him with this evidence, and he was irate that anyone would question his decisions uh, like in this phone call. So he's like a real dick. So in some ways, uh, it did affect society, um, just not Winston. I wouldn't say Winston mostly gets responsibility for that. It is what implemented the 911 system. Really? Until that year, there was no 911 system in place. You had to call your local police precinct. There was no universal number to call. Uh, so yeah, this is the icon. Like this murder helped create the 911 system. It's also responsible for inspiring a lot of bystander laws and other laws that protect witnesses so they feel safe coming forward. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it inspired a lot of pop culture. Yes. So as early as 1965, it inspired um, a Perry Mason episode. Mm-hmm. So just a year later. Well, this is a 
a crime TV show classic oh, God. story. Yes. There was a movie in 1975, a television movie called Death Scream that starred Raul Julia. I mean, this cast, I opened up the page. This cast is Raul Julia is a detective. It also stars as the neighbors, like the people, the witnesses, Lucy Arnaz, Ed Asner, Art Carney, Cloris Leachman, Diane Carroll, Tina Louise. <laughs> like it's just like wow. has every TV star like from that decade like is in this. Even Helen Hunt is like a kid uh, in this TV movie. Wow. I want to see this movie. Yeah. Uh so yeah, it it this was a huge movie based loosely based on this story. There's obviously many Law and Order related episodes. Yes, Law and Order SVU, uh, multiple episodes that are based on this case. It's um, referenced in the movie The Boondock Saints. I haven't seen that movie. I guess there's a church sermon in the opening credits where the priest is like talking about this. The movie I mentioned earlier is called 37. It's a fictional account of the night of the murder, and it's more of the POV of the um, witnesses, like what the vignettes of their life going on in this room. This movie is terrible. Also, it's called 37, even though it was 38. Like, So it's not a great movie, but it's based on the case. Uh, there was an episode of Girls where the episode is actually called Hello Kitty and the, the girls, the characters um, navigate through an interactive theatrical version of the murders. Sounds very girls. Weird. It's also referenced in the Watchmen comic series. And it was the basis for a Phil Ox song called Outside of a Small Circle of Friends. He actually, there was like some coffee shop near them where he played. Like a lot of folk singers played in this coffee shop. It actually sounded like a cool little neighborhood uh, with all these like whatever. Um, so yeah. And there's like many more. That's just like a tip of the iceberg. So I would like to end on perhaps the most hopeful aspect of this case, if there is one to be seen. And that is Sophia Farrar. She is the woman who went down to Kitty. She had a 13-year-old son and husband at home when she heard that Kitty had been attacked. She was just four foot eleven, and she was out the door before her husband could even get his pants on. She ran down the stairs without a thought to her own safety and found Kitty half-naked and bleeding. She called for Carl Ross, the man who was at the top of the stairs, to hand her a towel so she could stop the bleeding. He was too scared to go down to even give her a towel, so she ran up the stairs, got the towel, and returned to Kitty and comforted her as she waited with Kitty. Now, the ambulance was supposedly on the way the whole time, so that's what she was saying to her. She knew Kitty could hear her because she could feel her relax, feeling comfort in the fact that help was on the way. I'm sorry. Are you <laughs> so crying? sad. Yeah. I'm crying too. It's really <laughs> so sad. So she like sat with her just saying help is coming. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Dude, I've been really teary this week. I don't know what's going on. But she should get some credit. Yes. That's... <laughs> she was not a bad neighbor. No. So that's the story. (laughs) This whole complex was like so slandered. I mean, seriously. And this woman, by the way, is in the documentary. She was still alive. She just died in 2020 at 92. So she had a really long life. Her son is in the documentary. It's so sad. (laughs) It's really sad. So there's lots of cool pictures of Kitty we'll post. Yes, we Uh, will. She is really cute. So we'll definitely post those. And that's the story. Wow. Desi. You did such a good job. Oh, thank you. I was like <laughs> quiet because I just was letting you go. It was a really good episode. Thank you. Well, we will see you all on Friday. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.